thank you all so much for inviting me. It's like an honor. You're, you're fabulous. Oh, we're so glad to be here with you. You've you got to have an eye. Third Eye Education. Third Eye. Hello, and welcome to Third Eye. This is our penultimate episode of season one, and we're joined by special guest, Joy Scott Ressler. Storyteller and accomplished publishing professional, Joy Scott has a long history with educational publishing, working with NASSP, ASCD, and educational leadership, and has as well launched her own freelance editing enterprise, BNB Solutions. Starting next week, she'll be taking on a new role as acquisitions editor. We couldn't be more excited for her. Thank you to Anne Hallowell for editing this episode. We are super excited to talk to you because we think there's a lot of things that you can share with our audience, people who want to grow and be better versions of themselves. And of course, education in general is about enabling growth. And we do that by building these strong relationships. When you're working with authors, editing, you're trying to help them to accept change. How do you do that in a way that still keeps that strong relationship? The technique I use is one that I learned. I started in publishing as an editorial assistant. One thing I learned is how to query an author. You definitely don't want to overstep. They're the experts. You're there to help them so that they come across clearly to the intended audience. I just actually change the language and then ask them if it's okay to let them know so they know, okay, she's, she's thinking about this, she's come upon this and she realizes that there's more to be added or I can expand on this and she's offering me a suggestion. And I find that that's helpful as opposed to saying, okay, if there's something missing here, can you add it? It's understandable that they may not get everything and so you're just there to assist them. You're kind of like a, just a helpful support to them. There's two things that stand out to me in terms of a classroom teacher or administrator like Mike is here. One is that when you hear something to gently correct, to paraphrase back and adjust so that everyone else in the room might better understand. Absolutely. And the second thing that occurs to me is that you're empowering your author. You're making it so they feel like they have the choice. And I do think that's something we often miss in every level of education. Right. How I like to think of it is, you know, stooping to conquer. You know, they're the stars and you never let them forget that. And no one likes to have their thoughts or ideas trampled on. Everyone needs support. So if everyone can at some point put themselves in a support role, it just makes for a better relationship overall. I am a strong proponent of having strong relationships with authors, not just sitting there tweaking their words. I, at one point in my career, worked at McGraw-Hill, which is uh, the largest publishing firm for which I've ever worked. And more than any other place, I picked up the phone and talked to authors, even when I had to reject their projects, because it made, it made a difference to them, because they want to know, okay, here's this huge organization. And someone is taking the time to talk to me. That's the relationship, not just with me, but with the organization for which I work. As teachers, we're commonly talking about how we can shift to more of a, a coaching or a collaborator with our students, as opposed to the sage on the stage mentality that educators used to have. I mean, that's the foundation of a relationship, as far as I'm concerned, is that voice to voice, you know, communication. It can't be matched. I can't imagine authors when they put so much work into 
what they've prepared, and they're so proud of it that you can somehow work with them to help them build it and make it better or clearer. That's a delicate conversation. Absolutely. Props to Mike, because when I started in education, my administrator literally had the rule of if it's important, they're going to show up in person. So I'm not going to reply to anything. And I thought that was just awful. And the way Mike deals with it is he replies to every single person. He makes calls. He replies to every parent. And I think right now he is earning the benefits of that because, you know, there are anti-maskers and, and people who are angry in all these districts around us. And I think the most we've gotten is two people who are angry, which is amazing. I was just attending a conference the past two days. And one of my last sessions I set in on while they're presenting a thought and something that they've prepared for everyone to learn for. There's other people on their phone. They're sort of listening, but they're not. I greeted her afterwards and she said, you know, I, I really appreciate that you were looking at me because at least I knew somebody's connected here. It really made a difference for her presentation. I've had situations where authors just want to talk. They want to talk to someone and just talk about what they've written and they just they want an audience who among us wouldn't like someone to, to sit there and listen to them and it's something that we're losing but for me it will never be lost i value my authors in their entirety not just their words but what they have to say any issues they have Anything, for example, that may result in their not being able to get me what I need by a deadline, anything. And I don't just communicate with my authors when I need something. I just want to get them the sense that there's anything going on that, you know, I'm one of the people that they're going to let. It's the whole person, the same way that educators are being urged to think of students, you know, the whole child. I think of the, the whole author. So clarity of communication and expectations? Joy Scott, I would love to connect with something that you said earlier in our conversation. What you were talking about is the structures that you use, but how you can also leverage those structures to help you maintain and grow relationships. I would love you to talk more about your intentionality for what types of structures and how you create that flexibility. What are some of those structures you have in place that help you maintain that communication and that follow through and that high expectation for your authors, but also simultaneously help you build relationships? I have documents in place that I share with the authors so that, you know, up front, they know, in addition to my name is Joyce Scott, what it is I'm going to need from them when. There's not a lot that they don't know. There's not a lot that they have to wonder about. I feel it relaxes them like, okay, you know, she's got this. I don't have to worry about all of these, you know, various things. And I just think, who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't appreciate that? Yes, I know that I do. And that's one thing. I just always think, okay, what would I appreciate? I don't like, well, no, I want to know. This is what you want. This, I need this. Boom, 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 boom. You know, my colleagues, likewise, you know, have structures and we're all in the same team. We all have the same objective. We deal with different authors, but the, the end result is always the same to put out a quality product. And I want to call attention to a phrase that you've repeated several times, which is, that's what I would appreciate. And somehow that thought doesn't, I think, show up in education as much as it should. I wanted to be a teacher. I greatly admire those who have gone on and actually took on that task 
it's right up there with being the leader of the free world. And people don't think of that. Everyone is doing everything possible as far as I'm concerned, because again, it is an impossible job. There's so many things that educators are expected to do or push to do, get to know the students individually, then including their stories, their histories, getting to know their names, I mean, and understand their backgrounds and what's going on in their homes and getting to know the community in which the school is located. It's so much. I mean, it's impossible, but yet these people daily go do it. Um, it it's, it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. Our podcast team feeling very appreciated and seen. Thank you. Joyce Scott, I am kind of curious now, the amazing amount of experience you have in editing in all different publishing realms. Is there anything you've read that you go, huh, that is amazing. I never thought of that before. Actually, yes. A piece that I just edited because now I'm freelancing. A gentleman who I worked with at ASCD contacted me and he wanted me to edit it. It's about his experience. So it's kind of celebrating him, him writing about you know himself. And he is not an author of color. He's not a BIPOC author. But near the end, he highlighted the things you know in his career that were most significant to him. And one was that he was invited to join an all-Black uh, staff at an institution. And I thought, oh, you know, that's interesting because generally people think of it's a BIPOC person or person of color being invited or included in a predominantly white environment. But here, it was the opposite. And so there are different ways to think about diversity and inclusion. And this was years back. It really sparked something for me because before I launched my career in publishing, I worked for a lot of smaller companies. I had forgotten that in one case, I was the only Black employee at a company. And I hadn't thought about it, but there was no issue at all. Now diversity and inclusion is a big, big thing. People are really negatively affected by not being included in in certain ways. And I just thought, wow, how fortunate that I didn't have any issue. It wasn't that I was hired because they had this initiative and they drive and they had to hire people. That didn't even exist then. Working on that piece and hearing that author talk about that and highlight that as one of the highlights of his career just really got me thinking. Are there any educational slants on diversity and inclusion? I mean, this this sounds like it was biographical and that we can learn from it. Yes. Actually, a book that I worked on by the great, actually, and that is what I have to use, uh, Baruti Kafele. He's a former principal, I guess you would call him a turnaround principal, who is now a consultant. And Though I was not in the editorial department when this manager came, he requested that I serve as the editor because I edited two of his other books and we have a good relationship. I'm African-American. He's an African-American author. So there there was that connection. But his book is The um, Equity and Social Justice Education 50. In the book, it's broken out. Half of the book is on equity and half on social justice education. And he talked about ways of incorporating information about 
African-American students into the curriculum. He had a way to do it in math, science, in various subjects so that it's seamless. It's not just like this whole big thing like, okay, there are Black students, they have to be acknowledged. A way of simply working information and also this would allow the students who are not of color to gain information without like hitting them over the head with it. Therefore, uplifting everybody, entire student population. The Equity and Social Justice Education 50 by Baruti K. Kafele. Are there any other books, either published or not published, things that you've had to reject that you feel like, you know what, people should be seeing this. We'll use whatever platform we have to help it spread. I am the eldest of three first-generation Americans born to parents who are not from the United States, so parents of immigrants. And there's a lot more to assimilating than just learning English. There are cultural norms to which you have to adapt. And while my family didn't have to learn to speak English, they still had to adjust to a life in a country that differed greatly from that from which they came. One book talked about the community. It's uh, Team Up, Speak Up, Fire Up by um, Audrey Cohan and Johannesfeld and Maria G. Dove. And they talk about, you know, the educators and the community working together to help and support English learners. I honestly don't feel that ASCD miss anything, that there are any gaps. They do a great job. I do think you called attention to one area that should be more widespread, at least in my experience. English learner books are largely read by English learner teachers as opposed to classroom teachers that can incorporate the best practices. And you name-dropped a few books there that would be good reads incorporating the community. I think every teacher could benefit from. Is there any English learner text that would be invaluable to a classroom teacher of any content or grade level? The one that I say everyone could benefit from is the book by Margarita Estino Calderon and Sean Slack, which is, and I'm going to get it, Success with Multicultural Newcomers and English Learners, Proven Practices for School Leadership Teams. Schools could really benefit from having that book because this book contains guidance from the Department of Justice and the Department of Education. I was going to say, we try to break down these silos that we create for ourselves as educators, for our students. I mean, really, I think we have a lot to learn from all over the place, which brings us to our recurring segment called In the Blink of Three Eyes, which is trying to get information as, I don't want to say quickly as possible, but in, in short snippets that help us to process your recommendations. Joy Scott, what podcast, book, show, or whatnot has been influencing your thinking lately? Podcasts by Tan Hun. He's in Thailand and he is an ELL specialist. He is a great advocate and very good at sharing information on uh, best practices for English learners with the English learner community, which is very strong on uh, Twitter. His podcasts and basically his tweets we really value innovation. What is one innovation that you've seen recently or would really like to see? One innovation in education? It could be anything, actually. You've seen a lot. Oh, really? You've seen a anything. lot. Anything. <laughs> 
I mean, the technological innovations, I, I guess, the, the sharing of information in various electronic formats, just ramping that up. But right alongside with that is the fact that a lot of individuals don't have access to technology. So while I can see and appreciate the, the innovations, the technological innovations, it just immediately brings to mind for me the fact that there's so many that can't take advantage of that. But the innovations, I mean, there's no denying that the technological innovations are a boon to the field of education and to a variety of fields, actually. Teachers had to learn really fast how to become experts in teaching remotely in a very short order. And now our next task is developing systems of equity. I'm glad you brought that up because that is probably the next big thing that we need to resolve. I'm very mindful. I never say everybody has something. No, because if you think about it, if you know one person, if you know just one person who doesn't have something, then you should never say everybody has a cell phone. You just take that second to think about that. So our last point for you today, Joyce Scott, listeners inspired by today's conversation may want to take action on their learning. What might their first action be? To listen. To listen and really understand how important a person's name is, because that's the beginning of a relationship. People's names are who they are. And to, to not discount or even go ahead and just assume that it's okay to use an abbreviated version of a name. Respect a person's name and realize that that is the beginning of the relationship because you can lose someone. I mean, me, I'm older. I will in a second tell you, no, it's not Joy, it's Joy Scott. But children, uh, students, they may not feel comfortable doing that understandably. They may not be comfortable correcting. And so just take the time and listen. And if you think that you're not saying their name correctly, just just check with them. Did I say it right? I mean, and they could just silently just dying and therefore tuning you out. Well, Joy Scott, I really hope this is the start of a wonderful relationship. What a pleasure. Thank you guys so much. And can I uh, uh, call attention if anybody is an exceptional author. We work with many of them through our podcast and are easy. And is it B&B Solutions, uh, Joyce? That's my company. Yes, that, that's, yes that, that's my company. Yes, B&B Solutions. Highly, highly recommended. They'll treat you like a human. You'll get phone calls. You'll be fat. Having had the opportunity to work for a wide variety of publishing outfits, I want to give people the opportunity, I to call like regular for access to someone who has worked with publishers and who can just help them through the, the publishing. It's more of a give back, just help people and just, just share my expertise. Well, when, when Third Eye uh, finally publishes a book, we know who we're coming to. Thank you again to Joy Scott for joining us today. What a wonderful conversation. Thank you to Heather Light, Nick Truxell, and Mike Carolyn for being our hosts, as well as to Dover Iota Public Schools, for supporting this podcast. Thank you to Michael Terrell for writing our theme song. And of course, thank you for listening, following us on Twitter, and doing whatever else you do. Make sure you join us next time for 
the final episode of season one of Third Eye, when we'll be joined by Anna Thomas, creator of New York University's Human Capital Analytics and Technology Program. Join us next time on Third Eye.